Auto One Podcast Network. You're listening to Creative Writing, the motorcycle podcast so bad we received an ASBO in Wales. We've been voted best motorcycle podcast five times by David Caruso impersonators across the globe. Check us out on patreon.com forward slash creative writing to find out how you can support the show. All right. With no further ado, let's get into this week's topics, this week's shows, this week's arresting conversations. Uh, hell, I'm out of here. Who am I fooling? All right, everybody. Welcome to this week's show. I am Junk Meister. No time for Buttfucker Sculpts this week on creative writing. We got a long one to get through. And, uh, yeah, I just wanted to say, uh, before we get into the show, let's do a little disclaimer here, Toast. Do, oh my God, we have so many shows. This, this one's going to be a banger. <clears throat> this is episode 278 called Eastbound and Up. When I originally was recording this show, <laughs> I think it was supposed to go out like, what's the day? The, uh, yeah, this was supposed to go out like three or four weeks ago <laughs> when Bonneville Speed Week was happening on the 6th. <laughs> so we're, our few weeks behind um so when you hear the intro to this uh or the news in a minute it'll make sense why it sounds so weird um also uh we will do a little disclaimer here i think i don't know if i did it a little bit but uh you know hi if you shirk off a block of colby jack trying to get cream cheese you're in the right place <laughs> welcome to creative writing that's not how cream cheese is made <laughs> thanks tobor for putting that in the top of the notes I will read anything. Um, hey, the views and opinions of the participants of the Creative Writing Motorcycle Podcast are those of the participants. They do not reflect the policy, position, or opinions of Creative Writing, the Moto One Podcast Network, any of our affiliates, Sister Station, Sister Podcast, GSXR, 600 FM, The Squid, or any other broadcasting medium for which we are affiliated, all right? Our opinions are the respective participants, whoever says it, and is not intended to malign anyone or anything, even those goddamn FSD Tesla drivers. All right. I'll go to the cold reads at the bottom. Okay. Hey, everybody, dig this. Before we get into this week's episode, hey, Tobor, before we do the cold reads, um, I do want to say before we even start the show, uh, it's a little bit of a sad, sad note. Um, Tobor, you, we had, we had something we were going to say before we get into, you know, that we had lined up when it, a couple days ago, it was boiling hot here, right? And we had this little funny thing. Do you want to? I mean, do you want to do it? Um, actually, first off, how you doing? Uh, how you doing? I, I'm doing all right, and I hope you're doing all right too. It's been a little bit since I've seen you and since we talked, but Tobar, you look fabulous. Hi, junkie. I am wonderful. Although the topic is sad, it is a little sad. Um, and. And now it's cooled off. Nothing makes nothing's making any sense. So let's get into the sad part first. So uh, last week, uh, one week ago exactly, um, Wiggins texted me, and um, if you know Wiggs or if you follow him on his personal social media or anything like that, you already know what's happening. But if you don't know, um, Wiggs' dad uh, was found a week ago laying in a ditch next to his motorcycle um, with no pulse and. Uh, basically he had a heart attack, um, riding home or out riding on his motorcycle. And, um, yeah, he was, he's passed. So Wiggs isn't around, but, uh, he's back in Indiana right now looking through his dad's, I'm sure remembering the good times, the bad times and checking out that whole barn full of (laughs) 
bikes that his dad probably inherited from his grandpa uh, a few years back. And, uh, and Wiggs has been sending me some sweet shots and hanging out with family. So if you can reach out to him, um, just let him know, you know, that, uh, yeah, we're feeling it for him right now. Um, and he'll be back in a few weeks or sometime soon. We'll see. I don't, I'm not sure how long he's going to stay back there, but when he comes back, I'm sure it'll be with a new motorcycle. And Hey, if there's a way you're going to go, do make it doing something you love. You know what I'm saying? Riding a motorcycle, riding a bull, riding your, your favorite, uh, entertainer. I don't know. I'm going to quit talking right now. <laughs> okay. But yeah. So, so Tobor, you're right. The topic was a little sad. We got it out of the way. Everybody just reach out to Wiggs and, um, and let them know you're thinking of him. Uh, also, um, so listen, it is not very hot to anymore, Tobor. <laughs> The temperature has since dropped significantly and there is no longer a danger of fire either in the studio, the local forests, or my pants. <laughs> no, and it's and it's actually very nice right now. I, I wish I had a thermometer in here right now. It's got to be like, I'm cold. Let's go get a sweater. Earlier <clears throat> earlier today, I, could, I had sweat marks on my sweat marks and now it's like uh, the temperature has cooled off greatly, but it was very hot. Very, very hot, even at night for the past few weeks. It was not dipping below the 90s um, and pretty humid, so it was pretty miserable. And then the studio was awful. So um, we had something queued up. You want to just go go on for it? And this is, this is exactly what we had for last week when we were recording. Hello, Junkie. The temperature is very elevated in this recording studio. Heck yeah, Tobor. You look real hot. I'm real hot, too. I am hotter than Amelia Clark on fire. <laughs> if you don't know, she's the, I don't think you watched it, Tobor, but she's from Game of Thrones. She was the dragon mom. And uh, yeah, talk about being hot. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I can't remember what the hell we were, were going to do. I just remember it was so hot I wanted to get out of the studio. Oh yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, Tobor, you're very hot. I better power you down. I will resume production services in a limited capacity to keep my balls from melting. <laughs> did you did you just say balls? You're you're a robot. Did you just say that? I didn't say that. You fool. Oh boy. Okay, Dilbor. Well, hey, that was our that was our bit for last week when it was super 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 hot. However, now it's very cold, and that does not bode well. So, Dobes, I am going to put you on limited production uh, mode, though, so we can have the soundboard. So we'll see. You. I'm going to put you down here, turn you off. So we'll see you in a minute. If you could run the soundboard for me, that'd be great. Uh, also, now we can get into this week's uh, cold reads and into this week's show. And like I said, we ain't going to have time for BFG, but um, you know what? If you got any stories that you know from BFG... I'd like to hear him. That's Buttfuckers Gulch. And uh, that's a place where people go to die. Yeah. All right. Um, here we go. Let's start out this, uh, this week's show. You know, RP Enterprises, they've been a longtime sponsor of this show. They make some really crazy stuff. Sometimes we pass it on to our patrons to try out. Sometimes those patrons don't come back. And that's not my fault. That's completely Rex Panther and his legal team. They take care of it. They give the people... All the settlements. I have nothing to do with that. But RP Enterprises has brought you something, and this this is a good thing. RP Enterprises brings you their latest invention, the meta adhesive, the medicated adhesive graphic strip. 
This medicated bandage strip is emblazoned with bold graphics depicting infected pus-oozing wounds. So whether you have a minor scratch, a hangnail, or a clean gash, or just a little tiny paper cut, make sure you customize it with the medicated adhesive graphic strip, the bandage from RP Enterprises, that makes it look like your finger is severed when it's really just a paper cut. That is because... People like scars. People like a story. And if you got a little tiny paper cut, that's not exciting. You ride motorcycles for fuck's sake. Paper cuts shouldn't count. Paper cuts are nothing. Come back with half your leg dangling off. Maybe I'll breath that down. Maybe I get my name on it. Medicated knee brace that looks like... like okay, right, now that I got that in the notes. Um, hey, everybody. Also, Field Initiative Knives. Hey, you need to slice open a box? You need to slice through tape? You need to slice through a box of tape? Field Initiative Knives are custom, handmade knives that are crafted to suit the most important customer, you. Made by Harley Hooligan Flat Track and BRL Lightweights Twins Racer Chris Wiggins, Field Initiative Knives are made in a variety of shapes and sizes to fit your purpose. And fit a porpoise, maybe. Need to slice a tomato? Need to slice a biker named tomato? Field Initiative has you covered. Cal Recycle, protecting California's environment and climate for the health and prosperity of future generations through the reduction, reuse, and recycling of California's natural resources. Environmental education, disaster recovery, and the transition from a disposable to a fully circular economy. Visit calrecycle.ca.gov for tips on recycling used motor oil, batteries, paints, and much, much more. When I was out in the garage the other day, using cuss words because my battery was dead and unrechargeable and changing my motor oil and coolant and wondering where the heck I was going to put it all, CalRecycle was the first place that came to mind. CalRecycle.ca.gov for all your baking needs. Earth. Earth 911. It's a universal resource that helps you find your own shade of green. Earth 911 educates and informs consumers, businesses, and communities to inspire thought and facilitate Earth-positive consumer decisions. Small changes by thousands of individuals will have a lasting positive impact. More ideas make less waste. With topics like business, home, and garden, and living, learning, and more, earth91.com is your next destination. Help keep Earth's writing spaces beautiful and bountiful. Thanks, party people. Let's get into this week's show. All right, everybody. All right, all right, all right. Listen up, baby. I hate when I do this, but I'm going to do it because this is last week's show. Everybody's already talked about all this crap. It's three weeks old now, but you're going to hear from me now. Events. Hey, listen, Start on starting off this week's show, you know, what, you know what I did? I hugged a bum, everybody. I hugged a bum. Uh, much to my wife's dismay, I might add. I might make sure all the doors and everything are... <laughs> Closed around here before I tell the story. My wife is a very, very terrible, terrible germaphobe. And yeah, homeless guy, 3 a.m. No, I don't know what time it was. It was probably around 7 o'clock. I was getting groceries. Local grocery bargain outlet market. Grocery bargain. Grocery outlet bargain market. That's what it is. Grocery outlet. That's where I was. Putting my cart in the cart return. My car was right next to it. As I go to my door and unlock it, I hear some mumbling behind me. I turn around, and there's a sweet, bum, homeless guy. Next thing I know, he gives me a hug. And I hug that fool back, and uh, it seemed like he really needed a hug. He was so happy. 
to have some human interaction. Then he was asking me about my car and if I raced it because I had my Wisconsin, <laughs> my Wisconsin dragway, uh, Wisconsin International Raceway shirt on. And he was talking about all about racing and BMXing and all stuff. And I really think he was talking about it because he was mumbling so bad I couldn't hear a thing. He was I couldn't understand a thing he was saying. It was more like this. So imagine that for a good 10 minutes before I finally was able to just leave. But yeah, Junkie hugged a bum. Yay for Junkie. Yay for the bum. Uh, August 5th through 14th, if you're headed to the Sturgis Rally in Mudpot, South Dakota, let me know how it is. Oh, I already know how it is. I heard about all the fatalities and and, uh, how everything was. So yay, tell me all about it. Bonneville Speed Week at the Bonneville Salt Flats happening August 6th through 12th. How's that going? Oh, tell me all about it. I'd love to hear about it. I'll tell you about Bonneville. Um, August 14th, Vintage Bike OC. Hmm, that probably already, already happened. So the August 20th Dust Hustle. Good thing I told you about that three weeks ago. Happening at Queensland Motor Park in Queensland, Victoria, because that's already passed. Venice Vintage Third Sunday Ride, August 21st. That already happened. So August uh, 28th, SoCal Swap Meet. That happened today. Here we are. We're at today. Yay! The SoCal Cycle Swap happened today. And uh, September. Why didn't I have this down? Moto Fest, Coventry, England. That's got to have happened already. September 18th through 23rd. That's a little out of order. That should have been up underneath the Vintage... Oh, no, September. Oh, yeah, yeah. September. No, we're good. We're good. Yeah. Here we go. Motofest is happening in Coventry, England. And I think they're going to have some crazy British bikes out there. Like the Maving, which is a pretty good looking electric bike. Jeez. As I die over here. Tobor, why don't you stop me from choking on my own vomit over here? Uh, Yeah, they're probably going to have a Maving. They might have the uh, new Triumphs that are coming out. Baby Triumphs. I don't know what they're going to have there. Just go to it. Have some fun. Uh, September 28th through 23rd, the Variety Adventure Ride happening in New England, um, the New England region of Australia. The New England region of Australia. So we have a New England region here in... uh, the U.S., which is um, where New Brighton is and New London and New Liverpool. <laughs> no, we have a New England, too, so it's kind of confusing. It's in Australia. It goes from Tamworth to Tamworth, and it's to support the Variety Children's Charity, so it sounds like it's a good cause. Go do it. That's September 28th. I'm sorry, September 18th through 23rd. Also coming up, September 27th through 30th is the uh, World Speed Finals at Bonneville. And I think El Mirage is coming up here pretty soon. El Mirage is uh, uh, coming up here soon. I know because they canceled. Oh, yeah, the next next uh, event at El Mirage is going to be September 11th. So that's coming up here pretty quick. Um, October 7th, SoCal Bike Fest 2022 at the San Manuel Stadium in San Bernardino, California. October 8th, Joe's Mini Bike Reunion happening like Santa California, we see Junkie out there with his new mini bike. Uh, October 15th, the El Camino Vintage Show and Swap happening in the Gardena, California. 
October 23rd to tw- through 28th, BMW GS Rally Tasmania. So if you're going to be at the uh, Variety Adventure Ride in Australia, you might as well just do one of those like Robbie Madison, put like some paddles on your bike and like a ski on the front and just whoosh, hit the ocean and get over to Tasmania for that BMW GS Rally. I think it takes probably as long. How would you refuel on water? Ah, anyway, whatever. Let's get on to the next part of the show. This is some news, and this is where you may want to pay some attention. And I know this is old news, but big deal, right? So listen, Graham Jarvis, baby, he won his seventh Romaniacs title. I know it was like already a month ago now, but what, I'm so I apologize. 47-year-old set a new record and fought hard over four days to take the overall win in Romania at the uh, the iron, what do they call it thing, the big quarry, whatever they call it, the magnesium giant, whatever they mine there, the lithium, lithium giant. Lithium, you don't mine. Did you know that? Well, I mean, you mine it, but it's a brine. It's like a salt brine. Uh, oh no, my page, my notes, they're broken. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> so Graham Jarvis took his, uh, the seventh Romaniacs title, which is crazy when you see this thing, when you see how crazy it is. And I mostly watched, um, the, uh, the gold class. I didn't really watch the bronze class. They, you know, I watched whatever they were airing. I could probably go back and watch Red Bull TV to see if they got the gold class and the bronze class. I really wanted to see Poltares on his uh, Tenere do it because that thing is a 700, you know, CC beast when everybody else is doing it on, you know, 250s, 350s, 450s, you know, two strokes. He's on this 700 CC four stroke out there. So, uh, competing with all these little husky two-strokes. And the stuff they have to go up, I just don't know how he does it on that thing. It's just pretty crazy. So not to take away from Graham Jarvis, though, Graham Jarvis, not Graham Pa Jarvis, he's uh, he's was sitting in fourth place for the Hard Enduro World Championship Series as they headed into the last three rounds of the season. Then they came over here to the States, and I've got this has got to be like, uh, this must have been th- two weeks ago for the... Uh, Hard Enduro World Championship coming to the TKO, which is the Tennessee knockout. It's always usually pretty muddy in Tennessee, and uh, it's a knockout style of race that determines the final grid. So basically, they just do like a, a round, you know, rounds of knockouts. And then once they get that final grid, the fastest riders take on a 30 minute plus one lap moto. And uh, so that's how the TKO showdown, showdown goes down. Um, I think. I'm pretty sure Graham Jarvis got knocked out earlier, he like seventh or something like that. But uh, Tristan Hart from Canada, he took the top spot, while Manny Letton Bickler, who was like second or third at the Romaniacs, and he's just been like an upcoming star, he topped out uh, him and Mario Roman, who is another, of course. Uh, star of this championship series. Um, they rounded out the podium. Grand Jarvis went down an eighth. There we go. He eight spot, but he's moved up in the overall standings to number four. What I say he was moving into. Oh yeah. He was, he was in fourth, uh, moving into the last three rounds. He's still at four. Okay. Poo poo. All right. Here's some news for you. And it's old news by now. I've heard Yami noob and, uh, motorcycles and misfits talk about it. So by the time they're talking about it, it's old news. And I missed my, my chance to be first big deal. But on episode 270, you heard us mention that can am was getting back in the game, getting some more skin in the game after 50, mi- 50 years of being, uh, you know, sidelined here, eight episodes later, which is about three years of creative writing time. We get to see him. 
there's electric motorcycles. They released some press pictures when I whenever I typed these notes out three weeks ago. And here's my first take, my, my first opinion of these things. They released some some pictures of them, and one looks all right, and the other one looks like it has a huge PC monitor strapped to the front. For real, I'm not even kidding. So the one called the Pulse, which at first glance struck me as a smart pillin with a freaking Chromebook tablet on it or something like that, is ironically named as it left me without a Pulse, right? It looked too... Um, I don't know. The styling was horrible on it. I need to. I need to make some adjustments to my uh, studio right now. All right, much, 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 much better. I don't know if you could hear that, but I was struggling to breathe. I was struggling for air, the way I was sitting with my uh, <clears throat> my neck down earlier. So here we go. Uh, anyway, yeah. So one of them, the pulse. Like I said, fart peeling vibes. Very. How do you? How do I call it? Like futuristic, I guess, but I mean, oh, it's an e-bike, you know, you don't want it to look like it's from 1938, do you? Um, but it just looks, I don't know, it, it really did leave me without a pulse, especially that huge exposed, uh, I mean, if you think a, like a Tesla center display console is big, this thing had at least like a 16-inch flat screen monitor on the front. It just looked terrible to me. Uh, did not like it whatsoever. Um, the other one was the, uh, let me see, the now dead inside of me just stared until the back of the instrument cluster, uh, until it didn't look so bad anymore. So I guess that gives you my, my impression of the pulse. Uh, I fell asleep and my eyes closed <laughs> further investigation and staring will have to take place before a decision can be made. These are my notes from a couple weeks ago. They're pretty funny. Uh, the origin on the other hand, which, uh, looks a little bit more appealing, although it still looks like a nineties matchbox toy come to life is the one that i'd be betting on one's a little bit more street one's a little bit more off-road and if you remember can am back in the 70s and early 80s because i think they went out of business pretty quickly right after 1980 hit um they were off-road bikes to the max you know what i mean like they were uh they were definitely uh killing it in the motocross biz so they didn't have it on this stuff so they're trying to come back and uh they're trying to make a bike that will make you barf Staring at it, let me stare at the back until it just doesn't look bad anymore. So yeah, they'll make one that you accept and you just finally come to terms with it. And then they made one that looks all right, but it still kind of looks matchboxy. Um, yeah, n- and nothing else has happened since then. No news has happened. No things, <laughs> no new bikes have came out. No new announcements have been made. My inbox is full of press releases. So I just need to go through them and filter it out. Uh, on a side note, a little BTS, I have been been uh, doing a couple different podcasts. And um, ah, that's why it's so nice in here. Tobor, Tobor, look at me. That's why it's so nice in here. We're inside. The AC is not even on. You know, our... our uh, electric bill is like $8,000 this month from having the AC on, but I wish we had AC out in the studio. Uh, it would have been so nice to kick it out there and sniff some gasoline. All right. With that, let's, uh, we're, we're 22 minutes in and we have no time to spare. This next topic is, uh, you know, close dear to our hearts, near and dear to our hearts. And it's uh, very timely. So we need to get this out. Let's, uh, play ourselves in. The air is hot, almost stifling. The ground is a rigid calcium carbonate estimated as being 90% sodium chloride. It will instantly slice your feet 
if you dare to walk barefoot across its burning surface. All that you can see is a burning white world for mile after mile as the sun reflects off every surface around you, punishing your defenseless eyes. The vast landscape in front of you stretches so far and wide that you can detect the Earth's curvature despite the surrounding mountain ranges in the distance. But it wasn't always like this. Between 30,000 and 13,000 years ago, Lake Bonneville, as it is known today, occupied a large part of the Great Basin in the western United States. It spanned across an area that includes modern-day Idaho, Nevada in the north, and much of western Utah. The Great Basin was brimming with endorheic lakes at the end of the Pleistocene thanks to prevailing cooler temperatures and much more precipitation occurring after the previous glacial period. The lake had arisen and fallen over thousands of years due to fluctuations in climate change, but at one point it finally continued to rise until about 18,000 years ago. At its highest point, the lake was 980 feet deep. It's deeper than my soul. It was 300 meters, roughly, and it spanned 20,000 square miles. It was roughly the size that Lake Michigan is today. And it was contained by the Wasatch Mountains in the east and the Pilot Range in the west, as well as other ranges and natural dams around the Salt Lake Basin area. At its highest elevation, marked by the Bonneville shoreline, it began to overflow into what is now Idaho. The Bonneville shoreline is visible as a ledge on the Wasatch Mountain Range above present-day Salt Lake City. And the initial flood dropped the water level by 430 feet, and for the next 3,000 years, the lake lost water via river flow from the basin into the surrounding areas. The Provo shorelines was created during this time, and eventually the lake stopped flowing and regressed. And due to an atmospheric shift and a drier climate, the lake continued to decline and settled into its current form about 13,000 years ago. The first Americans started to arrive between 10,000 and 12,000 years ago, and they lived near the marshes and swamps around the Great Basin area. Fish, fowl, and large fauna like bison, giant ground sloths, and mammoths were attracted to, attracted to those wet resources or the moist resources in that area. So for what is that? What is that overlap there? Like 10,000 years? Or no, I guess 1,000 years. Uh, they had it good. Over the next few centuries, though, the megafauna died out and the Paleolithic inhabitants of the basin were replaced by people who became known as the Archaic Desert Culture, which sounds even older than Paleolithic, really. The Archaic people relied more on gathering salt-resisted plants and small game than their predecessors, and it was probably like eating pickles and lizards rolled in kelp and things like that. But water levels at Lake Bonneville started to rise some three and a half thousand years before it would actually be known by that name. And the archaic population receded as the lake reclaimed land. It's possible that the Great Basin was either uninhabited or very sparsely inhabited for roughly a thousand years. A millennia, if you will. A millennium falcon. Maybe that's what type of birds flew around there. I don't know. But around 600, the year 600... 
new people started to arrive in the Great Basin. And no, it wasn't peddlers. No, it wasn't pilgrims. It was more indigenous people. Uh, they brought new technology this time. And just to give you some perspective, globally, in the year 600, the Roman Empire had already fallen and was known as the, well, had fallen in the West, was known in the, as the Byzantine Empire in the East. In Mesoamerica, there was a volcano named Quetzalpec Quetzaltepeque, which erupted, covering a Mayan settlement, which is today known as Hoya de Seren in the, uh, uh, I forget exactly where that is, but the, uh, the Spanish, uh, basically discovered it and it's, it's like a Mayan Pompeii basically. And in the East, the far East, the first books are being printed in China and other wacky shit was going down also, as you know, but back here in the States, in the Great Basin, the Fremont culture Entered, the, entered that area and brought tech, new technology to there, like bow hunting, pit houses, and horticulture, like growing maize and beans and building adobe granaries to house these aforementioned grains. Uh, I bet I think beforehand, before the bow, they used lots of spears and that ladles, things like that. Uh, the Fremont tribes lived in what is now northern Utah, Nevada, and parts of Idaho. So the very same areas that were occupied by this you know, Enderiac Lake at the time. They thrived alongside the Anasazi until about the 1300s, and by some accounts, a hundred years earlier, Shoshonean tribes started moving into Utah from California. Fucking Californians, am I right? 800 years of this shit. Anyway, the Athabascan or Athabascan-speaking tribes also thrived in the Great Basin, which included the Apache, Apache and Navajo nations, but as the Shoshone moved in, they displaced some of those Athabascan, tri Athabascan tribes eastward. And this is important because the Shoshonean people included the Shoshone, the Goshutes, the Utes, and the Paiutes. And as you can imagine, Utah gets its name from these indigenous Americans. Could you imagine if it was called Athabasca or Apache or Navajo, Navata, I don't know. Utah is just as good as name as any. But Lake Bonneville was long gone by the time the Shoshones had moved in, but several historical events had already taken place in this territory by the time it got its name. The Spanish, who occupied what is the, the entirety of uh, North America, all the way up to Canada at this time, uh, were had been president present and exploring America since the 1500s came up through Mexico, took over most of the East or I'm sorry, the West and had, a, and everything colonized and populated. We're trying to populate on this side. So in 1776 in 1776, as the colonists in the East were ratifying the documents that would declare their independence from England, Spanish Catholic priests were already pushing an exploration through what would become known as Utah and making first contact with the Shoshonean and the remaining Athabascan tribes, right? So the soldiers turned fur trappers like Jim Bridger and Benjamin Bonneville were common in this area 50 years later. And uh, cities like Provo and Ogden also get their names from men like these. In 1847, Mormon pioneers moved into the Salt Lake Valley. And at the same time, the United States had captured Utah and New Mexico territories from Mexico proper, but the treaty hadn't officially been <laughs> hadn't been signed that ceded the land to the U.S. So the Mormons were kind of coming in there squatting when it was still up in the air, as if Mex you know before Mexico actually signed those places over to us. Uh, there were no First Nations 
in the valley at the time, but the Mormons did encounter northwestern Shoshone and Goshutes along the eastern shore of the Wasatch Mountain Range. And come to find out, in the language of the native Ute people, Wasatch means mountain pass or low pass over high range. There was a professor of linguistics and anthropology named William Bright uh, who said the mountains were named after a Shoshone leader who was named with the Shoshonean term Wasatch, meaning blue heron. So blue heron got to name the Wasatch mountain range and Wasatch became known as a mountain pass. It's funny how words change over time. Uh, a few years after the Mormons arrived, First Nations tribes asked the settlers for compensation when the immigrants began to establish colonies in the Salt Lake Valley, and the church leaders refused. Brigham Young, uh, his first counselor, basically said, hey, listen, our Heavenly Father owns this entire globe, and wherever we go, he wants us to settle and harvest from it. So they refused to give him uh, any sort of compensation for their land or anything they started to take from it. So throughout the next few years, the Mormons, they would buy indigenous slaves from Mexico. This is a really crazy thing I learned. Some really gruesome stories came out of that. They also went to war with the U.S. government, who didn't support their beliefs. They did this thing called bigamy, which I don't understand how you could even handle one, one wife, let alone more than one. Uh, but in the 1890s, uh, you know, a bunch of exciting things were happening right now through the 1700s into the 1800s, 1850s, you know, 1890s. But the whole reason for this story happened in the 1890s. So let's get there already. So in 1890, the geologist Carl Grove Gilbert, known as G.K. Gilbert, published a comprehensive, that's very inventive, by the way, buddy, very, very groundbreaking name. Uh, he published this comprehensive work that covered the Enderiac Basin and set the stage for future studies of the Paleo Lake, Lake Bonneville. He named the landscape after the aforementioned Benjamin Bonneville, who had explored the West, but likely had never even been to the Great Salt Lake, let alone this part of the Great Basin. That's all right. They're Casey Stoner. I don't know if he's ever been stoned. You know, names aren't everything. And if he's been, if he's been stoned, maybe he hasn't been stoned, you know what I'm saying? So... At this time, much of the West was still super wild in the 1890s, right? I mean, we're some some states weren't even states yet in the 1890s. There was only 42 states in the U.S. that year until Wyoming and Idaho actually became 43 and 44 in July. So halfway through the year, there was only 42 states. All of the West is still very wild. Uh, Utah did not enter statehood until 1896, for example. But meanwhile, in Europe and the United States, technology was taking over, and uh, as so was competition. So people at the time were miserable. Life is boring. You know, it was a boring, disease-ridden drudge. Leprosy is still around. Polio, all these gross, disgusting, uh, you know, poxes on everybody, which, would, you know, eventually we would eradicate. But at the time, life was just crap. Tuberculosis, you know, legionnaires, all this gross stuff, right? So let's back up a little. Let's back up just a little bit. We're, we're at 1890 right now, but we need to, we need to just take a few steps, a few decades back in time. 1817, I know that's a long time ago, but 1817, Carl von Dreis de Sauerbrunn rode his two-wheeled human-powered Dreisen nine miles or 14 kilometers since he was in Germany around the town just to brag and show off that he didn't have to walk, right? Look at me, I'm a fancy lad. I don't have to walk. I got this machine. That's all he could possibly, I'm guessing, ride before his ass bubbled up and turned red. So I assume that suspension didn't exist yet, but I assume that it was also invented right after. I guarantee it was invented shortly after that. Uh, these things were called, uh, 
bicycles or Dreisens, as they were called, uh, eventually went on to be called bone shakers. And, you know, we might get into that here. But according to the Britannia.com, easy for me to say, Dreis called his bike a lauf machine, which meant running machine. You sat on it, there was no proper pedals, but you used your feet like the Flintstone-style bicycle to uh, propel yourself. These were called Dreisines or Velocipedes, which was a more common name for the new vehicle. And while Velocipede does sound like a wicked trauma horror movie, I think it means fast foot velocipede i'm pretty sure i'm not gonna look that up but i'm pretty sure that's what it means so velocipedes gave way to pedal bikes called penny farthings today i learned i was today years old i was this article years old when i was writing the notes down on this that i learned penny farthings were named because of the size of the wheels into relations of the coin of the day so i guess a penny was huge and a farthing was small so the front wheels were giant and the small wheels were, were back wheels were small sounds better than 50 cent dime <laughs> or dime 50 cent piece penny farthing just rolled off the tongue a lot nicer than that i don't think there's any u.s coins that would uh, be you know are you on the dime quota i don't know 50 cent piece is the biggest biggest money i can think of besides my fake cartoonishly large quarter that i have so instead of going into the history of bikes let's let's get out bikes first two wheelers all that fun stuff let's get straight into racing so while gk gilbert was wandering around the native people's wilderness in the west in the 1890s, like I'm telling you, it was very, very native at the time and very still unexplored uh, largely. Racing was already a huge deal in Europe and America. What was America? You know, the East, East Coast was at least America then. So by the 1890s, walking was a huge draw. Racing was huge. What type of racing? Walking. Junkie, come on, you know, walking. Yeah, I'm serious. We got to start here. The dollop actually did a fantastic episode on the rise and fall of pedestrianism after 1860. If you want to go listen to that, it's a history podcast. It's pretty funny. But the reason this is important is because some of the competition structure and laws that would actually be put into place later were directly drawn from walking competitions. But now I'm back to racing. The first recorded bicycle race in America took place in Boston during May of 1878, according to PodiumCafe.com. Bicycle races had already been popular in France for about a decade, uh, and with about 300 tracks, bicycles and racing were ubiquitous to the French, and two-wheelers were now on the rise in America as well, skyrocketing toward their peak. So walking and bicycling shared a similar path because walking competitions started out as point-to-point challenges, and once they were contained to a venue like a warehouse or a track or uh, a Madison Square, Square Garden sort of thing, it was much more accessible for people to spectate and bet money. I'm telling you, like I said earlier, life is shit. People need something to entertain them. They will go watch a motherfucker walk around a track for six days and bet on it. That's how boring times are. So these walking competitions would attract huge crowds. And at the times, sometimes even the local local police or even uh, one instance, the National Guard was called in just to keep order in the place and keep it uh, keep it under control. So riots didn't break out about, you know, Jim Billy Bones versus uh, Carl Kneecaps walking around for six days and you're going to lose, you know, lose your month's rent. Uh, so, yeah, people, the crowds were rowdy and rough and oftentimes mostly men. So you can figure how these things went. And they're living this shitty, disgusting life, you know, syphilis-ridden, uh, eating rats for lunch. And then the only cool thing they can do is go watch these two two a-holes walk around uh, 
track all day. So walking comp- walking competitors would circle the venues for days on end in endurance trials to see who could uh, or. Uh, another another way, way was to see who could walk a predetermined amount of miles in the shortest time. Like, hey, let's do 100 miles, whoever does it the fastest. But endurance competitions became really, really popular. And if you go listen to that dollop episode, it'll explain why walking even became a thing in the first place. So the men would walk for six days straight, only taking breaks on Sundays because they didn't go to church. But... Their mama didn't want them to walk on Sundays. I imagine they weren't going. They weren't going to the chapel to pray. But I, I bet you they were praying for better shoes or sudden death or maybe trying to thwart diarrhea and maybe sleep. You know, they're praying, please don't let me crap my pants out there and please don't let me fall asleep standing, literally walking. Right. So I'll spare you the history of walking since the only walking most of you want to hear about is walking from the couch to your motorcycle. Go listen to the dollop if you want to hear about pedestrianism. But you just, I know you want to sit, but sitting for the longest time possible is even less exciting than walking, even on a motorcycle. So let's get back to this. Uh, so eventually in the 1890s, the two wheeled craze caught up with walking, if you can believe that, you know, whoa. So these things called safety bicycles had been developed a couple decades prior. And what a safety bicycle was is hey, it's got equal sized wheels. Now we're getting into pedals. Now we're getting into gearing and crank sets and all that fun stuff. By 1880, that was pretty much the norm, was just a safety bicycle. So by the time racing began to get by the time racing began to gain traction, bikes looked a lot like they do today. They were no longer the bone shakers, the penny farthings. It wasn't just two jerks walking around. They had uh, thanks to the Industrial Revolution. Uh, really a lot better bearings. They had a roller style change that chains. They had a sprocket gearing and spoke technology, and and they were called ordinaries. Um, These were lighter and faster than penny farthings by far much safer because you weren't falling from a six foot tall fucking wheel, you know, riding over a wheel and no brakes. You know, imagine stopping a penny farthing. You, you stop pedaling and it shoots you out of the seat. So John Boyd Dunlop, you might, that name might sound familiar. He starts developing the first pneumatic tire in 1888, which not only added better grip, but a bit of suspension. And, uh, it would prove to be a blessing and a curse as velodromes started popping up around the country. We've all heard of velodromes. We all know what they are. Precursor to motorcycling, bicycles, racing on banked board tracks paired with grippy pneumatic tires, and they allowed riders to reach deadly speeds. Steeply banked velodromes in Chicago were nicknamed Suicide Saucer. That indicates how dangerous racing could be. Riders blasted around their indoor ovals with no brakes, barely any protection. I think they wore like wool hats, and that's about it. It was the most popular indoor sport, and venues like Madison Square Gardens were filled to capacity in the winters. As you could measure, as you could me- uh, measure, as you can uh, imagine, they were also filled with cigar smoke. They had, you know, bedding, live bands. It made it more like a Las Vegas style event than a velodrome. Then you think of the nerds racing their bicycles around, but also the fact that these were indoor allowed the winter time to be this huge, huge draw for racing. So following the traditions of the earlier walking competitions, six day long races were very popular across the country. Riders did not eat or sleep and said they rolled around at high speeds, sometimes on drugs, sometimes delirious from lack of food and water. And it must have been like driving in a state of zombism. Or if you'd imagine taking a bag of mushrooms and then riding around and you're weak and 
you're weak and strong at the same time. You've got that crazy ape zombie lizard strength, but it, but you're also like starving, you know? Uh, broken collarbones, head injuries, and even death followed racers around the country like an unfortunate groupie that you can't ditch at a truck stop. In New York and Chicago, they would eventually ban endurance competitions for safety reasons, some of that stemming from the concerns of the grueling walking competitions, but also safety uh, concerns for riders and spectators. So if you can imagine, it's so hard, even walking competitions are so hardcore that people are like puking and like dying on the side of the track from trying to walk for six days straight, you know, on drugs and freaking out. The, the, it had to go. It started the the city. The they realized, you know, if I think properly realized that things are not a hundred percent how we would like these competitions to, to be organized. So they had to put a ban on them. Starting with the walking competitions, of course, bleeding over into the bicycle races, which were turning deadly. And if you think about it, at the time. When walk when a horse was a horse and I guess you know train the fastest you saw an actual human body move is probably on these bicycles doing like thirty miles an hour on these bank turns like this is just mind blowing and it's like watching you know watching a human fly for the first time or something is must have been crazy for these spectators who were probably also on drugs and hadn't eaten for six days so even though these laws were put into place to uh, for the racer safety, it didn't stop six-day races. It just changed how they were run. Uh, women racers also huge popularity in the 1890s. Their races were considered more suitable for families to watch, as they were less gruesome than the men's. The organizers shortened them to three hours uh, a day for six days, feeling that the women were the weaker sex. Right? Oh, you know, you can't pedal for six, uh, you know, 24 hours straight. So they felt like the they would make the women's race suitable to, to women's bodies, which we all know is bullshit anyway. But this made the women's races faster paced because they didn't have to worry about going six full days straight on meth uh, to stay awake on their bike. And, you know, they could do these really crazy fast sprint races. So the women's often had higher speeds. Um, they were uh, fa- a faster pace the entire time. You know, you could they could go not quite all out for three hours, but compared to six days, you know, three hours a day is pretty pretty easy. So they had lots of speed, lots of sprinting and passing com- compared to the men's six day events where they're just trying to stay alive. So it really made women's racing eclipse the men's racing and become more popular because more people came to watch it as well. Board tracks and velodromes were great, but bicycle racing limits were being pushed on and off conventional tracks. And in 1896, William Randolph Hearst, you may have heard that name before, uh, biggest a-hole in journalism, he hatched a scheme to promote his proliferating publications by sponsoring a coast-to-coast bicycle relay. Say that 10 times fast. Proliferating publications sponsor a coast-to-coast bicycle relay. He recruited a two-wheel enthusiast named Bill Rochelle to scout a route uh, through the U.S. and it happened to pass through the Great Basin. And his responsibility was the span from Nevada to Wyoming. So Rochelle decided that going north of the Great Basin would be too lengthy. So instead, he op- opted to travel west via the Hastings Cutoff. Um, it's shortcut. That was a kind of shortcut part of the California Trail, I think it was, or the the Oregon Trail. And it was made famous or infamous just 50 years earlier by the Donner Reed Party. And according to utahumanities.com, Rochelle 
and a companion named Charlie Emmes uh, began in a railroad town named Terrace, Utah, armed with just a few sandwiches, two canteens apiece, and a map that was given to him by an old prospector. So Rochelle and Emmes head southwest into the desert, and they quickly found out why the Donner Party struggled with the desert crossing as they sunk into these barren mudflats. They also ran out of water, but they were able to alternate riding and hiking until they finally got to the spring that had been marked on the prospector's map. Thanks, Thank you, old prospector, for at least having one, <clears throat> one thing right. They finally reached the town of Grantsville about midnight, pedaling their way down Main Street as two filthy, wasted dudes who didn't have to eat their bikes or their friends, unlike the Donner Party, who ate their wagons, their friends, their livestock and all that stuff. Um, and actually the tracks left by the Donner party, the Donner Reed party's wagons can still be seen today along the desert floor as they're in the, uh, the, uh, what do they call that? The Bonneville, um, Saldero basin, uh, Saldero marsh or whatever it's called, where, where the racetrack is. Um, Rochelle would t- return in 1907. So let's see, he went out there in 1896, so about 10 years later, Nine years later, he comes back with some business partners to drive a Pierce Arrow across the salt flats. He was testing the viability of traveling across the salt, and he would become a champion for speed and exploration in the area. And in 1989, old Bill Rochelle was an induct. I don't know if it's Rochelle or Rochelle. I think Rochelle. He was inducted uh, into posthumously, of course, into the Utah Auto Dealers Association Hall of Fame for his contributions to the industry throughout his life and all of his efforts uh, as an automotive pioneer in the state. He did some crazy stuff. So soon, racers descended on the salt uh, in droves in a quest for speed. But before we get to that, let's back up a bit to the end of an era on two wheels. Got to go back a little bit. And... uh During the bicycle boom of the 1890s, there were a reported 400 bicycle manufacturers in the U.S. with 100 velodromes. It was a boom. The ladies' racing was the pinnacle of the sport. And as the popularity of bicycles swept through the nation, at least the eastern ones in the 44-state union, everybody bought bikes. Then the industry abruptly (laughs) crashed and collapsed. At least manufacturing did. Everyone who wanted a bike had one, and the racing became the focus as well as speed. Um, If you know the story of Harley-Davidson and the story of Hendy uh, Manufacturing Company, which would uh, go on to make Indian, you know that the the whole reason uh, probably almost – those are the two surviving uh, companies, but you know basically the only reason that uh, any of those guys – any of those companies are motorcycle companies because they all got swept up in this craze of uh, bicycle racing in the in the 1890s. I'd like to take a little bit of time out right now to acknowledge a uh, someone that wrote in. Thank you very much to Laura D. You know who you are. Um, uh, she wrote in and said, Junkie. Um, the date was 1898. Further digging finds that the, uh, the dissolution of the Hendy and Nelson Manufacturing Company occurred in September of 1897, but Hendy didn't incorporate Hendy Manufacturing until January of 1898. 
The iterations of the company and names over the years lead to much confusion. That's because she had written in to tell me that in my ep- in our episode uh, Rivalry Rekindled, when Indian was first coming back on the scene, that I had the date wrong. That Hendy didn't uh, Hendy and Hedstrom didn't co-found Hendy Manufacturing in 1901. Um, Hendy had done Hendy Manufacturing alone uh, in 1898. So. Uh, the uh, the many iterations of the company and names over the years lead to much confusion. The mistake that makes me nuts, though, is when Hendy and Hedstrom are referred to as co-founders of Indian in 1901. My understanding of Hendy's connection with Hedstrom has to do with Hendy's sponsorship of racers and his ownership in the Springfield Coliseum. Since pacers were so unreliable, Hendy was captivated when he saw Hedstrom's pacer perform superbly at a meet, supposedly at Madison Square garden in 1900 he convinced hedstrom to work for him which hedstrom finally did in early 1901 creating the first indian prototype that may laura thank you laura and yes i do believe i've read that on our on a timeline before and i'm pretty sure i mean i know 100 percent that hendy uh was making bicycles before and it was called Hendy and the Indian did become Indian after him and Hedstrom got together. I do believe it was, uh, well, I know it was Madison square gardens. I do believe, do believe it was 1900 and, uh, Oscar Hed- Hedstrom was also working with somebody else making pacers, I think, which were basically motorized bicycles used to go fast to keep, to keep, uh, uh, help, help make a draft basically for people uh, working in the velodromes, you know, racing the velodromes. So let's get into that. Um, so right after all the bicycle manufacturers die out and crash, and there, I, I imagine that the same thing happened with motorcycles pre World War One and World War Two and Great Depression. I imagine there was a ton. I think there was over a hundred in the U.S. Uh, so at the time, so listen, several competitors who raced on trainers. Uh, realized that the wind, their clothing, terminal velocity, and pacers, etc., played a factor in their performance. So I'm not going to go into the pacers and the uh, the inventions of motorcycle companies, but we'll talk about this. Um, on a trainer with no resistance or behind a good pacer, these racers obviously knew they had better lap times, and this resulted in pacing bicycles to be fitted with engines and eventually the birth of motorcycle, right? So women racers were criticized because they dressed in tight-fitting clothing to reduce wind resistance. Even though they never showed skin, this is the Victorian era, and that was totally forbidden. So aside from inappropriate dress... Uh, who knew that these bicycle races, uh, what, what they were doing to women's bodies, right? So uh, if you didn't have a pacer, you had to wear tight clothes to keep your dress from flapping or, you know, you're not going to race in coattails. The guys didn't, the women didn't, and they flipped out because all these ladies aren't in their uh, big puffy dresses, right? So at the time, it was generally thought that speed was bad for the human body in general and a common belief that it was even worse for a woman. People at this dime in the late 1890s thought that if a woman got on a train, their uterus would prolapse and fall out on a train. Imagine the shock when physicians examined racing superstar Tilly Anderson and realized not only did she still have a uterus, but her body was sinewy and strong too. And according to a book by Roger Giles, I think his name is, her mother was horrified when the newspaper published an illustration of her naked chiseled leg. She probably flipped her wig. Uh, and yeah, um, 
the it was an illustration. It probably wasn't even a picture of it. It was just an illustration, but it was naked leg. So with with uh, bodily and bicycle lim- limitations in mind, racers started to set out to find a new way to push the speed limits. Now we know that motorcyclists did motorcycling. From this point on, they kind of split. All these bicyclists want to go faster. Uh, roads were shit at the time anyway. Bicycling, you know, people bicycled. It gave women a new freedom, actually. This is kind of a cool thing that came out of the women's racing is that uh, women, they, they had their own, you know, people respected them for what they did. But bicycling in general gave women this freedom to get out and go around the cities and things like that and just have a good time together on bicycles. So it's kind of a cool thing happening right now. But the people that were getting into racing and that hadn't switched over to these new motorcycles that still wanted to bicycle and keep pushing these limits, they were they were about it. So uh, before Richelle tested speed on the Bonneville Salt, the railroad actually held one man's idea of breaking the record. That is, of course, Charles Murphy in 18. 18- 87. Charles Murphy started to theorize about speed and drafting and all this great fun stuff, and he was already a super speedy cyclist on his trainer. He figured that he could pace a steam locomotive to get the vital wind resistance that he needed to reach a mile a minute, which is 60 miles an hour, right? Uh, Roughly a decade training, calculating, trying to convince local railroads to go along with the stunt finally worked out. In 1899, he met an agent for the Long Island Railroad, and 48 hours later, a contract was signed and a stretch of track was being prepped for Murphy. Um, And this is going to be, you know, if they're doing it on bicycles, they're doing it on motorcycles too. Motorcycles are starting to do wacky wherever they can set new records. You know, they're start, they're actually just starting to build motorcycles at this time. As you can imagine, Triumph and uh, Royal Enfield and uh, Indian starting in 1901. So this is right before they're actually going into production and starting making motors. I'm going to pause right here real quick because my security light has come on and there's probably an animal coming into my yard. So bear with me for one. Bear with me. It's probably a bear. It's probably a raccoon. All right, I have no idea what it is, but you've heard me say before in the studio, there's ghosts and stuff, and now I'm in a different room, and I can see out toward the studio, and the light came on. I don't know what made it come on. Let's get back to let's get back to racing. So rail workers, Milo Minute Murphy, right? These rail workers on Long Island's uh, railway, they are laying two miles of pine planks in between the rail tie, the sleepers, I think they call them, which are, you know, the rail ties that... Uh, The train actually rides on and then the rough, you know, ties in between. Um, They're laying it down on the Hempstead Plains. I have no fucking clue where that is. If you're from New York, let me know. Murphy would draft the train. This is his idea. He'd draft the train while riding on the smooth board planks. If I see a Binturon jump over that wall, I'm going to freak out. Uh, The caboose was fitted with a special boot-type extension that he would ride in. It was basically like a wind tunnel. They would block him from wind on all sides. Rubber bar was fitted across the back of the cab or the caboose so that Murphy wouldn't crash into the back of the train. And finally, a vertical white stripe was painted on the back of the car. Does all he, his, his job was just to pedal his ass off and focus on that line. To make a long story short, after several attempts, at least five, he was only able to muster a mile in 64 seconds. So he tried, failed, let's restart it, try, fail, try, fail. The problem wasn't Murphy it, or the setup. 
it was the to the embarrassment of the Long Island Railway, the train wasn't fast enough. So by the end of the month, I guess trains didn't do 60 miles an hour back then. Uh, by the end of the month, they had a they found a new train which could reach 60 miles an hour. And they reset it with the drafting rig and got everything hooked up. The new rig was faster and heavier than the old one. And according to Murphy, it came alive quite suddenly and he began his business. Uh, A few different accounts that I researched said that the weight and the speed of the new train caused the boards that lined the track, his, his pine planks, to vibrate and rise and fall in like an undulating fashion. Basically... Charlie Murphy. Is his name Charlie Murphy? <laughs> Did I say that right? Is it Charlie Murphy? I I wrote that, but I think I'm wrong. So Murphy, he was basically riding on top of a wooden wave uh, as the weight and the draft of the train shook and lifted the boards. And he was also being pelted in the face by hot cinders, rubber, dirt, pebbles, and paper that was all swept up by the train's draft and ejected out the back like hell's snowblower. Could you ma- imagine riding behind a wood chipper as it's like, you know, getting cement and shit thrown in. Is there anything behind me, Tobor? Can you see out this window behind me? I'm just, I feel like I'm being stared at from behind. If a leopard leaps through this fucking window, I'm dying. The dog's not freaking out, so I think we're good. So mustering, uh... Actually, yeah, so so imagine just being shot in the face with a constant roost of like hot, dirty rubber and paper and rocks. So he, he slipped back a little bit, and one of the officials yelled through a megaphone to ask what's the, what was the matter, and uh, he said this caused him to look up, and he claimed to instantly have dropped back about 50 feet. So mustering all of his strength and power on his fixed gear Tribune Blue Streak, that's the uh, type of bike he had, the Tribune uh, Blue Streak. He He's powering as a fixie, I think. I don't think they, they were geared. They were just a fixie. So he's he's pedaling his ass off, and he starts to gain, pedaling faster than a speeding steam locomotive. And part of that is the wind. There's no. He's riding in a vacuum now, so now he's getting sucked toward the train. And what I can only imagine is the longest minute in history, right? Because he's trying to set this. He had two miles of plank, and he's trying to set... Uh, uh, a mile a minute, which is 60, you know, 60 second, uh, mile. I, I can only imagine this was the longest fucking minute of his life. So he's actually set a record by traveling one mile and 57.8 seconds. So just a tad over, just a tick over 60 miles an hour, all while riding a shaky, basically wooden wave being pelted by hot, dirty debris in the face. And to wrap up the story, the train conductor, as soon as they hit that mark, boop, he cuts the boiler or cuts the uh, coal. I don't know what the fuck they ran on. But just after that mile marker had been reached, so Murphy was on a fixie with no brakes. And he rammed into the rubber bar at the back of the cab, and it caused him to basically endo at 60 miles an hour. And as he the bike hits it and like rocks back and then rocks forward, he's on a he's on a fixie. And if you know what a fixie is, there's no brakes, so you you stop pedaling. Only bicyclists usually pedal slower and slower and slower until they stop. If you just were to stop the uh, stop your legs from pedaling the rear wheel isn't really going to lock up. What's going to happen is it's going to eject you off the pedals because there's so much force and weight on the bike that you're, you're not going to skid the rear tire. You're doing with so much, you're way too fast. 
you're, you're going to get thrown up in the air. So as his bike hits the back of the train, it rocks backwards a little bit, flips forward, starts to do this endo. As he's catapulting over the handlebars, he reached out for the caboose rail uh, as several of the officials grasp the air in desperation. They catch Murphy in a desperate instant and pull him and the bike and everything over the railing. It must have been like that thing where your like feet are like tangled up in the pedals. They pull everything over the railing just as the wooden planks ended on the rail bed underneath the, uh, the, the car. He would have been riding on ties and dirt and rocks underneath. He would, he would just he would have been ground hamburger. So he lay on his back, dirty and burning. Uh, he in his statement, I, I don't have it written here, but I read uh, one of his accounts. It was fantabulous. He said somebody fainted. Two men were kissing each other, like they're hugging each other. Uh, they couldn't believe that they. It, it would have been like a meat crayon. So as you can imagine, everyone's uh, completely happy. So he's laying there on his back, dirty, burning. Not only burning from exhilaration, but all the cinders and rubber that were hitting him in the face, and. Um, yeah, he'd done it. He'd set this new record, set a new standard. 96 years later, also burning, but this time under a hot Mexican sun, another rider tried to break a new speed record the same way Murphy did almost 100 years earlier. Murphy proved that the cyclist was limited not by the gearing or the bicycle, but by wind and basically terminal velocity, like the the energy that it takes for your body to overpower the wind resistance will never, uh, you'll hit a speed and you won't, no matter how strong or fast you are or how much gearing you're, you'll never have speed to overcome that. So, uh, champion cyclist, Fred Howard, he was about to use that wisdom and capitalize on Murphy's stunt, you know, from a hundred years ago in 1983. Bonneville was rained out, but that wouldn't stop Fred Howard from attempting a new speed record in sunny Baja, California. I hope it wasn't as hot as it was fucking the last few weeks here. He paced a modified drag car along the peninsula on a paved stretch of road, but imp- imperfections in the asphalt only netted him 124 mile an hour top speed. That's all right for a bike, right? I mean, you've all done probably 124 on your bicycles. You go out, grab that Walmart rig, flip it in top gear, boom, 124, right? So he, he only reached 124. This is in 1983, 124 miles per hour on a bicycle with 1980 safety equipment, if you could believe that. In 1985, Bonneville had dried out and Fred Howard was able to set a, <clears throat> a new record miles per hour on a goddamn bicycle. And uh, a decade later, just a few short years before the Suzuki Hayabusa made its debut, and uh, it was probably already likely in development. You know how how motorcycle rolls out, it it rollouts are. They start five years before they're actually made. I think the Honda Blackbird was around at this time. Uh, Suzuki's, you know, GSXRs were out. The boost is about to come out. It's uh, 19, what I say, 1985? No. Yeah, 19, 1995. Fred Rompelberg from the Netherlands hits the salt flats on his bicycle and set the bar higher. A new record, 166 miles per hour on a bicycle. On a bicycle. I'm scared to go 40 miles per hour on my bicycle. 
166, all right? So the previous king of the salt on a bicycle, (laughs) Fred Howard, he coached this woman named Denise Mueller, starting way in her teens and all throughout her life. And um, she'd been competing just like uh, Fred Howard was a multi, multi, uh, what do they call that? A multi type of cyclist. Why can't I think of the word? He, he, um, he basically competed in like marathon style stuff, triathlon, so on and so forth, you know, tour de France type crap, multidiscipline. That's the word I'm looking for. But he started racing speed, right? And she was the same herself, a multi-time champ under Fred's tutelage. She had raced all sorts of, uh, racing throughout her life. And he eventually convinced her that she should attempt top speed records. So, um, he said, no woman's ever done it before, so you should try it. So in 2012, she began, and she set several records for women uh, at the time. But Fred Rompelberg, he also encouraged her efforts and insisted that she borrow his 1,000-horsepower modified dragster as a pacer. So all these bicycle people have these drag race cars that they pace behind. And in 2018, I think she was 43 at the time, or something like that. She said, you know, I'm in my 40s. Uh, she set a new record by hitting an average speed on her bicycle. The speed was 183.932 miles an hour on a bicycle. Some of you haven't even gone that fast on your motorcycle. And some of you have motorcycles that won't go that fast. Lord knows I do. She beat not only the women's record, but the human record for paced bicycles. Imagine going from even 1918, you know, when motorcycles are a thing. Imagine going back in time 120 years, let's just say, to 1998, or 18, 1898, 1998, 100 years ago, 1898, when she, uh, you know, when people were doing like, 30 miles an hour on a bicycle or 20 and people thought that was ludicrous. Your uterus is going to fly off. Your titties are going to fly off. You're going to die. You know, people are crashing and heads are cracking open to see somebody go 183.932 on a bicycle. You would flip your, you would, you would lose your mind. It'd be like if you saw an actual space alien walk through your door right now and picking its nose. That's how it is. So listen, After Bill Rochelle first rode his bicycle on a scouting trip across Bonneville Salt Flats in 1896, A.L. Westward of the National Trails Association declared Bonneville the world's greatest speedway. They already fucking knew it was going to be a speedway. Rochelle's return in 1907 driving the Pierce Arrow across uh, the lake bed was truly the impetus for generations of speed racers to come. And although Rochelle is often noted as the first person to drive on the salt flats, uh, in 1907, SaveTheSalt.org also cites Ab Jenkins as the first person to ride a motorized vehicle across the salt flats when he rode his motorcycle cl- across in 1910. So uh, perhaps on and across are two different distinctions, I don't know. But how how we went from walking competitions in, in the East in the 1800s and uh, – to being out here on the Bonneville Salt Flats, where at the same time the Donner Party was crossing, and you know, Mormons were go- selling, buying <laughs> Native American slaves from Mexico, till we get to speed racing, it's been an incredible story, right? So before we get into racing and speed records, I think it's important to note that at this time, 1907, 
1907, uh, mining of salt began in the thickest part of the lake bed with horses and plows. And an actual salt mining town was constructed there called Salduro, which means hard salt in Spanish. And from ni- in 1906 and 7, uh, a railroad was built through the middle of, the, of Salduro heading toward Wendover, Utah. Other interests were already at play by the time Bill Rochelle's driving this Pierce Arrow out there. Uh, people didn't really come to the salt flats to race until seven years later. So we'll get there. But um, imagine you're out in the middle of this white, burning hot plain, uh, something where the salt crust is, is, you know, super thick, and you're actually using horses to mine this. And it's like, we got to get supplies here. We got to get this salt out of here. How are we going to get this salt out of here that we're mining? Get a train in here, right? So it wasn't just like it's open desert. There was a little town there and everything. Um, the first unofficial, the first official unofficial, I should say, speed record was set on the salt flats by terrible Teddy Tetzlaff. And uh, his Tetzlaff all the way to the bank, baby. I almost said terrible Teddy Ruxpin for some reason. Maybe there's, I have some repressed childhood memory. At any rate, Tetzlaff got his name from the torturous abuse that he subjected his cars to. And he was a racer from the early 90s, the 1890s, back when the automobile was little more than a motorized wagon. Old Teddy was out there blowing him up already. He raced a Fiat for most of his career, uh, competing in overland races like the Los Angeles to Phoenix dirt race. Remember, it's a dirt race because there was no roads going from L.A. to Phoenix at the time. Everything was a wagon trail and... uh, uh, dirt, dirt road. As well, he raced the Vanderbilt Cup in Santa Monica and the Corona races. Um, he had raced the first four Indianapolis 500s, getting a podium spot in 1912 uh, in his Fiat. I forget exactly when the Indianapolis 500 started as a race. I think the donut guys did a past gas on that, but I think it was, yeah, about 1908 or something like that, or, or 1909. Uh, so anyways, he gets a podium spot in 1912, uh, in his Fiat. In 1914, it was a different car that Terrible Teddy would take to new speeds at Bonneville. Less than three decades, even after Carl Benz had designed the very first things that would be called automobiles. Terrible Teddy took a 300-horsepower and C race car to 142.8 miles per hour on Bonneville's surface. This is 1914. Uh, um, the Wright brothers are flying a basically a modified kite. Uh, people are covered in, you know, <laughs> syphilis in, in, in uh, New England at the time. Like... You know what I'm saying? Like things were crazy. We're still driving horses on on streets in some towns. You know, covered wagons, horses pulling trolleys, crap like that. This fool's out there on Bonneville Salt Flats, going 142.8 miles an hour. Um, he is said to have remarked upon the salt's smoothness as well as its cool temperatures, not overheating the tires. So afterwards, tire companies start hitting salt, testing new compounds. Uh, you know, new, all sorts of new designs out there at Bonneville. And although it was probably an unremarkable remote footnote in the overall general story of Tetzlaff's accomplishment, 1914 was the year that Bonneville would become a famous spot on the map 
of world speed racers everywhere. When you hear, uh, you know, someone's down in, you know, Chachabinsky, uh, you know, Nevada, you're like, oh, who cares what the fuck that is? What they do? Oh, they flew, you know, they flew a car for the first time, blah, blah, blah. Okay, great. So speed racers, though, or automotive junkies will know, bling, that's going to get, you know, lament, lamented, <laughs> laminated into their brain or lamented. Um, so it may have been an unremarkable footnote in the general history. Uh, story of a f- person setting the first world record of 142.8 miles an hour. It was also unofficial because there wasn't a timing uh, and scoring. I mean, that was the, the very first guy they run out and do it. So there wasn't a timing and scoring official uh, yet, you know, th- anything like that. So he did this run, but it was unofficial. Um, and aside from the salt, Bonneville also contains potassium, magnesium, lithium, other valuable minerals, minerals that are actually becoming more valuable today as technology moves forward. But for roughly half the year, the salts are covered in a shallow layer of rainwater. And as the big rain begins to recede in May or June, um, <clears throat> the wind comes in and grooms the surface super smooth, makes conditions ideal for racing. And at one time, the salt crust covered 96,000 acres. A 1914 rail paper out of Chicago claimed that the salt crust was estimated to be 12 to 15 feet thick at the center out there in Salduro, where the uh, train station went to. A geographical or a geological study, rather, uh, a study bulletin from 1927 put that figure at five feet. So, eh, you know, who are you going to trust? The guys that actually dug the hole or the sensational news rail paper? I don't know. But at five feet, still pretty thick. The crust has declined today to just about 30,000 acres. We'll talk about that later. In 1915, a news article already bemoaned the destruction of the salt. Remember, 1907, Bill Rochelle goes out there and drives on it this same year. Well, 1906 and 07, they were already constructing a, a, a railway out there. The um, salt, the Mount Salton Mining Company had already started in 1907. So in 1915, what is that, eight years later, they're already saying that uh, the salt deposits spanning a distance of 65 miles long and 25 miles wide are, quote, being torn up and ground up and dispensed to the public in cartons and packages. End quote. That's from the Salt Lake Tribune, September 12th, 1915. We're coming up on that date, you know, we're coming up on that that date here pretty soon. It did little to curb destruction, though, as another geological bulletin the next year published the discovery of potash in the Bonneville Lake Muds. So by 1917, the Utah Salduro Company began harvesting minerals for potash production, and over the next couple years, the company dug brine ditches and used the silt and spoil from the ditches to construct a dam around Salduro, or the Salduro Loop. According to Save the Salt, uh, the ditches were abandoned, leaving mud deposits, I think they called them tailings, just feet from the racetrack. And then, of course, when it would rain through the wind and the water erosion, the mud deposits infiltrated the salt. And I assumed it destroyed it, or I assumed that it uh, thinned the salt, so to speak, because now you got this mud and dirt and silt, and it when it filters through the salt it's replacing salt with that stuff so that didn't deter racing however speed trials and new records continued for 
decades. And in 1935, Sir Malcolm Campbell set an unofficial three, or no, he set the official 300 mile per hour record at Bonneville. And at the time, Daytona was a super popular location to conduct speed trials, including an official 141 mile, 0.7 mile per hour run in 1911 by Bob Berman. So why am I going back 20 years? Well, hey, he did it. Uh, at Daytona, Berman used the same Benz and C uh, Blitz and Benz. That was the name of the uh, the, the model of the, the the Benz and C that Terrible Teddy had used three years later at Bonneville. So in 1911, Bob Berman does this uh, 141 mile an hour run. Uh, Terrible Teddy takes that same exact car and uh, or same exact model and takes it to Bonneville and goes 142. Sucker. Uh, when Sir Malcolm proved that he the the crusty salt was perfect for breaking into the, into the three hundreds, the land speed community quickly shifted all racing efforts from Daytona Beach to the Utah desert. And in 1936, a year later, a company called Bonneville Limited acquired the Salduro mining operation, restarted the production of potash. Um, I typed out production of potash production because I'm smart. Ten years later. And the Bureau of Land Management became the custodian of the salt flats. Remember that. They, they started to be the custodian in 1946. But they left the management and use to the entities that were stakeholders on the lake bed. So they are the custodian, but they aren't going to tell everybody what to do on it. Which could be a good thing, could be a bad thing. Racing, mining, records, and deterioration has always been a concurrent part of Bonneville Salt Flats history. But regardless, the fame and glory of pushing the boundaries of speed has always taken priority. And in 1956, Texan Johnny Allen took a Triumph-powered streamliner up to 214.40 miles per hour. Miles per, baby. He set a world speed record beating out Wilhelm Hertz's month-old record of 211 miles per hour on his supercharged NSU. I don't know if Her- Wilhelm did that at Bonneville or if he did it in Germany or whatever, but did it on an NSU, and old uh, Johnny Allen said, take take a dump in your mouth, buddy. Open up because here's, here's uh, 214. That same year, Ab Jenkins, you may remember that name again, he broke every record for an American car possible in this new model made by Pontiac. So the next year, in 1957, the Pontiac Bonneville hit showroom floors, and two years after that, in 1959, the Triumph Bonneville is unveiled. Both vehicles pay tribute to the achievements made on the Utah Salt. You know, Johnny Allen gets his day because they named the new bike the Bonneville and Ab Jenkins gets to try out this new prototype in uh, 56 and a year later it would be the Pontiac Bonneville. Pretty dang cool. And there's a couple other stuff uh, that goes with Bonneville, but you get it. Uh, according to the timeline on Save the Salt's webpage, I use a lot of Save the Salt because they are keeping history and keeping tabs on it, good tabs, and um, they record everything that happens there because they want to keep it uh, going. So I know that they're, I'm pretty sure that they can be trusted. So according to the timeline on their webpage, the 1960s were a time of increased production and severe salt depletion, unfortunately. And in 63, the government actually issued potassium leases and 14 miles of collection ditches were dug, which siphoned water off the salt flats. 
If you want me to go back up a few paragraphs and read how salt is made, you'll realize why that's very bad. Uh, the very next year, the Kaiser Aluminum and Chemical Company, they acquire the potash productions on the flats, and they requested permission from the U.S. Geological Survey to pump water from the collection ditches out to the potash facility. The Salduro Loop ditch was abandoned, causing the aforementioned leaching of dirt and mud into the salt that year, so 63, and by the early 60s, racers were already noticing a reduction in quality and quantity of salt on the flats. Simultaneously, though, jet-powered cars enter the scene, and they've been hitting Bonneville plane and, and reaching speeds of 600 miles per hour. So the quest for speed and the protection of the landscape were converging in one small corner of the Utah desert in an ancient Endoreic lake bed of all places, of all places for two of these epic battles to go down. It's out there on the white, salty plains of Bonneville, California, Utah. I said, <laughs> I said that wrong. It's Bonneville, Utah, USA. In 1970, the last world speed record was set at Bonneville by Gary Gablich. You might, that might sound weird to you. What? They still, they're going out there breaking records right now. Listen to me. In 1970, the last world speed record was set at Bonneville by Gary Gablich driving the Blue Flame. The Blue Flame was an aluminum rocket-powered speed missile which reached a top speed of 622.407 in the flying mile and 630.338 in the flying kilometer. That tells you how much wind, uh, wind and distance can put stress on a car. Unfortunately... Due to salt loss, the length of the Bonneville Salt Flat Racetrack is no longer long enough to achieve such high speeds. Wrap your head around that. 1970 was really the last uh, speed record of 622. That's pretty fast. What if somebody did that on a bicycle, though? You know what I'm saying? Uh, 30 years after taking custody of the Bonneville Salt Flats, Utah turned the maintenance of the flats over to the BLM. So the state is giving it to the Bureau. The agency argued uh, that one major event a year did not warrant enough use to justify track prep and maintenance throughout the year. We're the Bureau of Land Management. We got crap to do. We, we're going to run your racetrack for you. So in response to this statement, another timing association was created and four yearly races were added to the schedule. Suck that, BLM. Prep that track, BLM. Well, in 1979, a joint U.S. Uh, United States Geological Survey and Bureau of Land Management study concluded that salt loss on the lake bed may be caused partially by nature, but significant loss was a direct result of salt brine moving along drainage barriers and toward the man-made collection ditches. And industry was the largest cause of salt brine being displaced in the lake bed where it naturally occurred, going into ponds, into wells where the chemical elements could be extracted. That's uh, 1979. Keep that year in mind. Throughout the 80s, more and more world speed record uh, racers abandoned the Bonneville Salt Flats because the length of the track continued to recede. Racers cry out over the next decade, and several photographic documents are begun as well as volunteer efforts to address the shrinking landscape. A bunch of organizations pop up. You know, the people are frustrated. People are mad. People want to race. People just want to recreate, too. And, uh, Nothing's happening. In 1985, the Bureau of Land Management 
designates the salt flats as a special management recreation area. Keep that date in your mind, 1985. Um, so in, in 79, they say, hey, we get it. Salt's moving off from basically potash production. In 85, uh, the salt flats finally becomes a special management recreation area. In the 1990s, things really started to move for the salt flats. They started to gain some traction, if you will. They really got the wheels spinning on some things. Um, racers at the end of their rope and desperate for change began to petition Congress for intervention. And from 91 to 93, several bipartisan resolutions passed through the House and the Senate, started out with Utah uh, uh, Republicans that were just, you know, regular guys then it went through a lot of democrats got on board with it and a lot of some people that weren't even reps for the state of utah got on board and were like hey come on man we need to preserve this place in 1990 oh what they did was uh the house and the senate they filed all these things that required the secretary of the interior to conduct studies on the loss of salt at bonneville like finally get the the federal government involved the blm and the racers had been button heads since like what 19 you know 30-something, so for 60 years. Uh, in, in 1992, the salt deterioration was so bad that world speed records could no longer be run. 1992. Uh, the salt deterioration was so bad that the the, re- the record requires a two-way run within an hour, and then the average is taken, but racers didn't have enough room to, to get up to speed, pass through the, uh, the gates, stop safely, turn around, get back up to speed through the timing gates and stop again. It was, it was not enough length. The, the salt was gone, just totally gone. And officials determined that only national records could be run. So when you say that the racing is still going on and records are still being set, notice world, uh, world records are no longer taken. Um, and they can't even be done because the salt is so short. I mean, they already stopped in 19... The last actual record to be set was in 1970. People were just trying to get up to that over the next few years. And as the track got shorter and shorter, their times got slower and slower. So Will, Wally Parks, if you don't know that name, come up here to Pomona. He was an automotive journalist for Hot Rod and a lot of the Peterson publications at the time. He was the NHRA founder as well as several other. Wally Parks is an amazing guy, did a lot of amazing stuff, read about him, do whatever you want on the side. He's important for this story because he brokered a deal with the mining operations, which he uh, which had switched owners again in the late 80s. So he's dealing with different people every five years, it seemed like. Um, and the deal stipulated that while the mining company would pump brine back onto the salt flats during the winter months when racing was not taking place, and then they'd let it bleed off into their stuff as they needed it, right? So uh, when the racers um, aren't there, hey, we you just pump, pump your brine back. It'll, it'll settle the salt back onto the, uh, the plane, right? So... <clears throat> The five-year plan started in 97, and by 2001, the race surface had been restored to 11 miles at least, a distance that was safe for racers to get back up to speed, run at speed for a mile, through the timing plates, and then slow down for the timing gates. Uh, Don Vesco proved the track's viability when he set a new world speed record of 458 miles per hour in a streamliner. And although the five-year agreement ended... Riley Mining Company continues with the pumping agreement, and a new uh, study indicates that the salt brine should continue to increase 
the surface salt as long as you keep doing this. Things were really looking up for the salt flats and the racing community. Unfortunately, it only lasted a few years. In 2004, a BLM evaluation of the pumping plant's success is published, which is the same year that Intrepid Potash Incorporated acquires potash mining from Riley. So you have the Bureau of Land Management finally saying, hey, look, even though we didn't do jack shit, this pumping plan is perfect. Salt's increasing. The guys are pumping salt brine back onto the lake bed, which is kind of what naturally happens when it rains and all the salt gets there and then it dries out and, and the wind blows it flat. It's exactly what they're just pumping it back on rather than uh, letting all the rainwater drain out into these collection uh, dishes and then taking all the components they need and letting all the water just evaporate, right? So it's great, great fucking intrepid potash you had to step in right you had to come back so over the next couple years intrepid they file a new mining plan and an environmental assessment i don't know if you have to do it every time you're a new owner this has got to be like the ninth new owner since uh 1906 when they started right in 2012 the plan uh wait let me see over the next couple years yeah they they uh file a new mining plan and environmental assessment in 2012, the plan and assessment, and, oh, that's supposed to say and, that's why that looks wrong. The, the plan and the assessment are finalized and approved, and in a strange move, very strange move, the BLM admits that it never informed the state historic preservation officer about any of the degradation or any pumping plans or any of the conditions that have plagued Bonneville over the years at all, ever. Because it was not 100% sure that any of the salt's degradation was attributed to the mining operations. They thought it may be. They said it is partially, probably, it's been getting hotter and drier. The uh, the rainfall precipitation isn't that much. It could be the racers. You know, it could be all sorts of factors. They, they did not acknowledge that it could have been the mining operations. So... Let me back up a little bit here and tell you what's going on. So this is 2012 that this happens. They they were asked about it and they say we never we never got this uh, historic uh, preservation officer this this info. In 1975, Bonneville Salt Flats was entered into the National Register of Historic Places after the tragedy of 1970 when the last speed record was set and they knew that the salt had got to an all time low and it had degraded too far for anyone to even set any more speed world records. They were desperate. The racing community was desperate. They um, Entering a location into the National Register of Historic Places allows for identification and protection under the National Historic Preservation Act of 1966. So basically, you get the federal government saying, hey, this place is worthy, it's been cited and noted, and we're going to get what's called a preservation officer assigned to ensure that the measures are taken to actually protect it. You don't just get it, you know, you get the the title under this uh, this act, but that who's to say that uh, uh, anybody goes out there and actually protects it, right? So they, it gets assigned a preservation officer. Well, isn't it kind of weird? In 2012, the BLM finally comes out and says, hey, since 1975, or when it got you know, in the National Register, we never said anything really to the uh, the preservation officer, right? So very, very interesting to me um, that here it is, you know, years, years later, and there's nothing going on. So... 
it just seems that 20 years of published studies, community action, physical effects. There was a photographic study to document the salt's uh, degradation and and uh, shrinking. All of that goes un- unnoticed by the state officer. I don't know. My There's a couple theories I have. One is that the BLM was trying to quietly meet the needs of both the racers and the miners without having an intervention, which I was thinking about earlier in the story is great. You get to have your cake and eat it too. Neither party has a problem, yada, yada. However, obviously all it takes is one little oversight like this to create decades of problems, right? So interestingly enough, um, uh, you know, the Save the Salt started to petition the Bureau of Land Management to lay down dry salt to improve some conditions. The salt at the entrance of the salt flats had totally been diluted into mud. And in 2014, 2,000 tons of salt were laid down to cover the mud and restore the salt to that area. But salting is very expensive. It was not, um, you know, a, a affordable long-term for the Save the Salt Foundation. I think they're a nonprofit, so you can imagine... Um, and in night in 2015, the, uh, that was 2014, 2015, the year that this podcast was launched, save the salt communications with the BLM totally breaks down the organization, all the racing organizations and the Bureau have not met eye to eye on almost anything for what, 70 years now, save the salt has found more traction reaching out to Congress every time and engaging the BLM the Bureau of Land Management through representation rather than directly. So a lot of things aren't coming out. A lot of things aren't going the racer's way or probably the, you know, salt uh, potash mining group's way too. So it's very, sounds very, uh, you know, for, for whatever reason, combative of the BLM, uh, the way that it feels like they're treating these racers. So as of today, as of today, the once five foot thick crust is just inches thick. And the salt pumping in the late 90s proved that restoration was both possible and viable. And in 2014, 600,000 tons of salt, 600,000 tons of salt, uh, brine, was pumped in. But it's still not enough because each year that the salt declines only means that the, uh, the volume needed to preserve the thickness will only increase every year. So it doesn't matter, you know, that's, that may have been, if you did the math from 95 to 14, may have been what you needed as a minimum, you know. Uh, another problem is potash. Potash is a valuable component of fertilizer, and it's only increased in demand as global populations and increased use of ethanol and fuels continue to rise. The, that's the grains, you know, the, the Bloomberg reports that grains production has doubled in the last decade and potash prices are at an eight-year high right now to meet this demand. Um, several global companies are investing or plan to invest billions in potash mining in the near future, not to mention that some of the other chemicals that were mentioned earlier, in, uh, if you go way back to the beginning of this, we were talking about lithium, magnesium, all all of those other high-end uh, components and chemicals are, as battery and EV production begins to permeate the automotive market, are becoming highly sought after, right? So it's hard to say whether or not the salt will ever return to Bonneville or if racing conditions will continue to deteriorate. The once feet-thick crust has dwindled to inches. The salts that were described in 1915 as covering 96,000 acres, 65 miles long and 25 miles wide, are now... 
12 miles long and five miles wide. And according to the uh, Bureau of Land Management, or I'm sorry, according to BLM.gov, the U.S. government's official website, those are the numbers. It's a, it's now 12 by 5, where it used to be 65 by 25. Uh, and a 2019 article written on uh, the Save the Salt website starts off with these words, quote, this is not going to be an easy read. This is an ugly, stinging bit of truth. End quote. The article is written by Leslie Noth and uh, Marlo Trait, and it goes on to document the devastation of the machine. Due to the deteriorated surface conditions of Bonneville, a team principal, who is Marlo Trait, stated, quote, In 50 seconds of a single run this past September, our streamliner sustained more damage than I've ever seen in my 50 years of car racing. The damage was devastating. End quote. Uh, pictures uh, on the site showed shredded gears, broken connecting rods, dented oil pans, blown up, uh, you know, some blown up components. They were the oil pans were not only dented, but they were filled with enough metal shavings to cast a small sculpture. Various other bits of failure, uh, all done to this uh, four thousand horsepower. Target 500 race car or Target 550 race car. According to the article, a weird phenomenon known as porpoising was observed on the surface, and it was like a porpoise jumping along the surface of the ocean, just barely in, barely out, barely in, barely out. Several other drivers commented on the quote bucking bull effect that they felt on the sand, and at least one was uh, fearful of being knocked out by the incessant bouncing in their particular vehicle. A lot of suspensions. Wreaked, uh, wreaked havoc on a bunch of not only shocks but you know a bunch of cages and stuff that year so um and just crazy <clears throat> lee cecilio lee cecilio from texas and rob freyvogel from pennsylvania awesome last names that i can't pronounce they both had devastating crashes that week leaving both drivers hospitalized and fighting for their lives one I don't know if they're better now, but in the article it says one possibly uh, needing years to recover, to come back to even walk. I think it might have had to do with the spinal injury. Um, anyways, yeah. So they they both had devastating crashes. Both machines destroyed. I, think, I don't know if one was on a motorcycle. And uh, absent from this article was any mention of Jessica Coombs. And it's part, you know, it didn't happen at Bonneville. So... Why mention it? But uh, Jessie, as she was known in the motorcycling world, was also killed that very summer as she was nearing a speed of 550 miles an hour up in uh, the Alvord Desert in Oregon. And although she died in the Alvord Desert and she died in a completely different state, you know, I guess adjacent, the whole the Bonneville Salt Flats are a stark reminder that the whole reason span, land speed racing migrated there was the pristine surface and the surface that was hard, flat, and smooth thanks to Mother Nature and had been that way for what, I, what did we decide, like 13,000 years or 10,000 years whenever the uh, Paleo Lake was there, right? So now we get to undo 13,000 13, uh, years of... Um, Mother Nature's beauty and Mother Nature's wonder, and we just basically uh, been ruining it in about a hundred. What was my last surface here? It's a surface that was hard, flat, and smooth thanks to Mother Nature, and has been that way 
until man's thirst for minerals and Earth's resources unraveled 30,000 years of nature's wonder in less than 100. So if anyone has been following along, you know that the Speed Week was canceled due to heavy rains. Um, The next event will be El Mirage, September 11th. It'll return to Bonneville September 27th. And uh, for the World Speed Finals, I believe is what it's called. Remember, always protect your local and regional recreation areas. Clean up after yourself. Don't take the good times and parties for granted. If you like the good times and parties, keep them safe by keeping your area safe, just like the Oceano Dunes at Pismo Beach. You never know how long a recreation area is going to be open to recreation. Uh, Go see Bonneville while it's still there. Uh, And I don't mean Speed Week. I mean just Bonneville being a salty plane. It sounds like whether or not there's racing there, it sounds like that thing is shrinking and pretty soon it's going to be five miles by like a quarter mile, right? So um, within you or your kid's lifetime, you got to go see it. It may not be there anymore after that. So it'd be interesting to go see it while it's still extant. Support also your local racetracks and motorcycle shops, because just like the Bureau of Land Management said to the racing community, one event a year doesn't warrant keeping something open. So smoke on that, Tony the Tiger. That is our episode uh, regarding Bonneville. Hope you liked it. We started out from the uh, Paleolithic era, right? And moseyed our way through bicycle racing and the things that brought people east, ironically, uh, through the west. On bicycles is how it all started. So I thought we'd keep with it. Um, Go out. uh, Thank you, everybody. I should say for the emails and things like that, since uh, this is a few weeks behind now. um, I hope everybody has enjoyed their, um, you know, email missives that we sent out last time. I don't even know if we've covered that uh, or the real mails, I should say, real mail missives. Um, Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you to our Patreon supporters as usual. Uh, and speaking of Arizona, Phoenix, and uh, the wild, wild west, I think we have a Patreon supporter moving out this way from Wisconsin. So that's pretty amazing. Um, and have a good uh, rest of the week. Ride safe. If you have anything that you want to contribute, if you've raced Bonneville, if you know more history, if you are interested in the history of how bicycle racing got started, because that's what got all these motorcycle companies going, um, and who knew that women's bicycling, you know, the more and more I researched this, the crazier and crazier shit got. It was pretty funny. Um, but yeah, it was great, uh, great researching all this. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Hope it wasn't too much of an encyclopedia read. It took me a long time to type these notes. And I hope you enjoy listening to it. With that, folks, stay safe. Create a ride yourself around the neighborhood. Next, actually, in the next few days, this Friday, this Sunday, we're going to be uh, releasing an episode with a wonderful, talented artist from Canada. So be listening for that. The week after that, we're going to get to some moto camping. And uh, the week after that, we'll have to see what, what happens. But stay tuned. Creative writing. We love you. Peace, grease, and tell the species that god tobor tobor hit the hit the button tobor save me tobor please <laughs> <laughs>